Welcome to Liturgy and Lawning, an eight-week limited series podcast about the church and the COVID-19 pandemic. We begin each episode with a question and invite each of our participants to introduce themselves and answer the question in turn. We'll use a process of mutual invitation for this. So, Jane, I'll ask you the question first, and once you've introduced yourself and spoken to that question, you can ask whoever you like to speak next. Our question for today is... During this time of quarantine, a lot of us have sifted through boxes and bins of old pictures, clothes, and household items from our past to get more organized and to clear out clutter. So have you in the process of doing that, assuming you've done so, serendipitously recovered something that you want to reuse or repurpose back into your daily life? Jane. Uh, so I'm Jane Gertson. I'm an Episcopal priest and uh, have been working on fostering new forms of spiritual community over the last several years. Um, and I guess my answer to this question today, I was actually, when you first asked it, Jason, I was laughing because the thing I've been working on the last few weeks is cleaning out my inbox, which Jason Odin always teases me about um, my ridiculous amount of emails that I keep. And that's not something I necessarily need to repurpose back into my life, but what I've been sorting through lately. Uh, I think the thing spiritually that I want to repurpose back into my everyday life, at least is um, I've been taking a class on meditation online and um, have kind of rediscovered my little prayer corner in my house that I had set up years ago and my prayer cushion and have been making a concerted effort to sit in meditation for at least 15 minutes a day. And um, some of the things that are on that, that prayer table, I think, have come back into a sense of meaning, like remembering to myself why they were important to me, a icon or a special stone or those kinds of things. So mostly I think it's the practice of meditating that I've been, I, ha- I did have to clear some things off in order to reclaim that space. But that's, that's my answer for this morning or this afternoon. Uh, and I will invite uh, Di. Hello, I'm Di McCullough. I'm a lay person um, and I am glad to be here repurposing. So I spent all winter watching the BBC's Gardener's World, and I was really excited about making a little patio garden, and then COVID struck mid-May, or I'm sorry, mid-March here in Ohio, um, and quarantine happened, and I couldn't make what I had charted out on graph paper, and so I went into the basement and um gather the things I could find. And now I have peas and clematis growing up the sides of what used to be crib rails. So that's um, what I've repurposed. And it is so nice to have a place where life goes on and growth continues when so much feels on hold. Um, So I'm really grateful for that repurposing. How about you, Carl? Well, I'm Carl Stevens. Um, I so I've I've mentioned this before, but I've just been painting a lot, uh, illuminating uh, morning prayer. Really, the text of morning prayer, and although it's painting is something I've always done, um, my fascination with book of books of hours um, kind of slipped away in the last five years, and I'm certainly rediscovering it. I think if I had been born in the Middle Ages. Um, 
Well, I would have been cross-eyed and then dead at 12 from a bursting appendix. Uh, but um, beyond that, I think I would have been a monk in a scriptorium um, because I, to me, it is the most powerful, pleasurable, wonderful thing. So to go down in the basement and find my gouache again and, um, and get to work has been my repurposing. Uh, how about you, Jana? Well, actually, it's funny that you asked this question because the day that I decided I was not going to go out anymore um, in March, I also decided it was a great time to finally go through the boxes of my mother's stuff that was in the basement. She died at the beginning of 2013, so it's been seven years. And that has been what I've been doing most of the weekends and some evenings a little bit at a time. And the the humorous, lighthearted answer to your question about what will I what will I take with me is that this weekend I discovered a $20 Amazon gift certificate that someone had given my mother in the 1990s and it still worked like she never cashed it. So thank you, Myrna, uh, my mom's good friend who had done this. I sent her a note and told her she was very tickled. That's the funny answer. The, The deeper answer is that I have this strong sense of, of my mother being with me in this strange time. And I remember when I was a kid, one time uh, talking with her about history and what she remembered. She had not been uh, alive during the depression, but of course she grew up hearing all of those stories. And there is something about the continuity of history and family history in particular that is powerful and something that we can draw upon when life suddenly turns upside down, which I think it has for so many of us. Yeah, so um, my answer to that question, which is my own question, um, I, I certainly spent a lot of time going through old stuff, and and then and then this week here in Cincinnati we had, uh, or last week we had flooding, and so my basement got flooded, and so of course you had to go through, kind of go through that process again, and um, I found a, you know, I just had a lot of this old wood that um, I had kind of sitting in a corner and you know, the bottom of it was kind of wet, you know, after the water. So, but also my, my daughters uh, have the rooms in the basement. And so their carpet got all wet. <clears throat> so I had to take that out. It just created an opportunity for us to, um, to do something creative and do something new in their room. And so I'm using all that wood and, and to, and I'm putting it to good use in their rooms. Um, there's another thing that happened though, that has been really cool is, is um, my wife, we got married a few years ago. Um, we're both, this is our second marriage and we, um, so we're, we're a blended family, but during this process, she went through all of her old VHS tapes mm-hmm. and I got to watch them. We had to borrow, we had to borrow a VHS player from our friend and, um, but we watched through them and I got to know more about her life and kind of see her when she was a high school, you know, a teenager and, just got to know a different side of her that was really, really meaningful to me because um, I've only known her as an adult. And, and uh, I mean, I, I know that's the case for many of us, but just being able to see a different side of her was just something that I can take into our relationship as we are, you know, continuing to build that. Um, you know, today, so today's topic is about um, ancient practices and the idea of like discovering or, or rediscovering them. And I think at first I originally thought I was going to make this about kind of, you know, like, like you said, Carl, like the book of hours or, you know, like the daily office kind of this idea of like praying, you know, seven times a day in this kind of monastic way. And as I was 
researching, I came across um, something about this thing called the prayer wheel and realized, and I knew this, but I had realized that my friend Jana um, was like a co-author of this book. And um, so I was like, oh, this is like great because this prayer wheel thing is like a thousand years old. And the story of it is somebody found it like five years ago and it's starting to be read. It's being rediscovered and kind of reintegrated back into people's like spiritual practices. But it's funny because that happened like five years ago. And ironically, like five years ago, something happened in my hometown in Oklahoma city um, where they were renovating an old elementary school and they took these blackboards off and behind the blackboard was another blackboard. And there were um, drawings and, and like, like stuff in chalk, like on this blackboard from 1917, like perfectly preserved. And one of the things that they discovered was this thing called the multiplication wheel. And it was obviously kind of this heuristic device that helped kids learn how to do um, uh, mathematics and, or, you know, uh, multiplication. And, but it's funny because in like 2015, when they discovered it, nobody knew what it, what, how, like how it worked. And so it's just funny that like, ironically, five years ago, there was this discovery of this multiplication wheel and this discovery of this prayer wheel. And when I learned about the discovery of the prayer wheel, it made me think about the multiplication wheel. And I was just like, I got to talk about this prayer wheel thing. So um, I asked my friend Janet to come along. who's with us today as our guest. And she's going to talk about her book um, about the prayer wheel and just kind of how it works and, and how we use it. Um, when I was reading through the book this weekend, I saw a quote from James Martin, who's, um, I think a Jesuit priest. And he's, I think that's the same James Martin that we're talking about. Um, he, he wrote this thing. He, he wrote this line, the first line in the introduction. It says, sometimes returning to ancient sources is exactly what we need to renew our spiritual lives. And I just thought that was really like so timely. Um, I think as a lot of people are seeking for renewal and seeking for um, uh, something to kind of give us new perspective and to really to sustain us through this uh, trying time. I think the prayer wheel is something that discovering it for ourselves could be really powerful. Um, so that's why I was wanting to do that today. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about Jana. So I, um, I met Jana about what, six years ago when she went on a pilgrimage to Turkey that I, uh, that I led, um, I co-led with, uh, with another priest and, um, I had no idea who Jana was at the time. I had no idea how famous she was. Um, and, <laughs> and I say that, I say that jokingly because I, I knew that that would kind of embarrass her, but, 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 uh, but I got to know Jana and, um, and then I realized, you know, that Jana had written all these books and, and, and I came home and I read one, the, one of the books that, um, I had heard about called Flunking Sainthood and I just fell in love with it. And, uh, and in fact, um, she doesn't know this story. She probably doesn't, she knows the story cause she was there, but she probably doesn't know this aspect. But about three or four years ago, we were in San Diego because we were both at a conference called SBLAR, Society of Biblical Literature or the American Academy of Religion. And, um, I went with her to help her, like, in a sense, promote a book. I think, right? Like the Twible is that we were doing that. We were just talking about the book with a parish, an Episcopal parish out there. And that was kind of a moment for me when, um, 
it was kind of a moment, or at least the moment that I mark as the beginning of kind of my journey to the priesthood. Um, because at, it was like there was this priest and he was, he was a academic priest, like he was a priest and he was an academic. And I was like, oh, I could see myself doing that. I could be, because I'm working on my PhD and, and, um, and he was doing the same thing. And I was just like, I could really, you know, I could do that. I could see myself. So uh, we shared that moment together, a very important moment in my life. And um, so she's, like I said, she's read a lot of books. And so the book on the prayer wheel is the one that we want to talk about. So I invited her on and uh, for her to talk about it. And the book, the name of it is called The Prayer Wheel, A Daily Guide to Renewing Your Faith with a Rediscovered Spiritual Practice. So, Jana, I'm going to turn it over to you with a couple of questions. So the first question is, what is the story of The Prayer Wheel? And I know it, like, it was discovered five years ago, but there's a lot more to it. Um, and then if you remember, <laughs> I, how does the prayer wheel work? Um, so I'm going to hand it over to you and, and let you answer those questions. Well, the second question about how the prayer wheel works is actually more complicated than it seems because we don't really know. I mean, we have reversed engineered what we believe is a viable spiritual practice based on the prayer wheel, but at the end of the day, we're just guessing because they didn't leave behind an instruction manual. So um, let's back up a minute. Thank you for the lovely introduction. I did not know that about your story about feeling called to the priesthood at that time. That's really amazing and beautiful. Thanks for yeah. telling me. Um, so I have a friend, David Van Bima, who used to be the religion reporter for Time magazine for many years. And when I was in New York in 2016, David and I sat down to talk about the possibility of my being involved with this book project, because the year before he had encountered this traveling, well, I guess at that point, not traveling exhibit, exhibition of religious artifacts, one of which is the wheel that is the basis for our prayer wheel book. It comes, the prayer wheel is just one tiny piece of this huge book that was for sale um, in 2015 for, you know, a cool couple. I think they were asking $5 million or something at, at the beginning. And what was unusual about that book was that it contained all four of the Gospels. And it was, uh, you know, a thousand years old, basically, something close to that. And to have all of the Gospels gathered together it was a really beautiful thing. I, Carl, you mentioned that you're interested in illuminated manuscripts and uh, kind of beautiful medieval things. You, you would probably really dig this. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it, it is a beautiful thing to look at. And the prayer wheel was added a little bit later. They think at least a century later, and it's just one page of this huge illustrated book. Um, what intrigued David about it was that we didn't really know how it worked. It has, it's a diagram that looks like a target, like you're having target practice. I'm trying to describe it for audio listeners, but maybe you, you can point them to our website, which is um, the prayer wheel website. If you Google that and there are downloads and things yeah. where people can, can find what it looks like and, and manipulate and print them out. Um, and it has four rings. So going around this center ring that has Deus or God in the center 
are four concentric circles that going outward. And in those four circles are different religious texts broken down into tiny phrases. So the Lord's Prayer is the key one, but then there are also scenes from the life of Christ, such as his um, descent into hell, his resurrection, his ascent into heaven, and seven um, gifts of the Spirit from Isaiah chapter 11, and then the Beatitudes. So all of those are broken down into sort of these little phrases, and then they're directing people toward the center of the wheel and the way they're broken down. So in each of the seven paths of the wheel, you get one piece of the Lord's Prayer, you get one aspect of Christ's life, one scene from his life, you get one um, part of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then you get one beatitude and its accompanying promise. So it seems to be a roadmap for an ancient way to pray. And that's how we decided to approach it. And there was a line in the book that said, like, um, as you're trying to describe what it looks like, I love how somebody said, um, it's like a monk had a compass and drew the circles. Mm-hmm. And you know, they, had, they had a compass because there's a hole in the middle. Yeah. Of, of concentric circles. And so I, I love that line. Just I love the idea of seeing, picturing that monk with that compass mm-hmm. making circles. I don't know. That was funny. Well, and it's very tactile. One of the things when we began showing this image to experts, um, medieval experts, you know, uh, we also had our friend David, uh, David and I had our other friend, um, Patton Patton Dodd, help to write the book and help with the research on this. But none of us are experts in medieval life or medieval religion. So we had a lot of kind of catching up to do. One of the experts that we consulted with pointed out to us something we hadn't noticed, which is that there are thumbprint smudges and, you know, fingerprint smudges on the original, which indicates how tactile this was. This was not just something sort of abstract. This was actually touched and manipulated as it was prayed. Do you you think it's... Uh, a little like rosaries. I mean, I'm just thinking about other manipulative objects or manipulatable objects, which have a, you know, a, a format or a formula for praying attached to them. Yeah, probably. Um, the rosary as, as a spiritual practice arose later. Um, but the impulse seems to me to be the same mm-hmm. that, and, and here's something where I differed from both David and Patton because I was pushing us from the beginning to have people touch the diagram as they were praying it because I found that personally helpful. They didn't really feel as strongly about it, that it was something that you need to sort of follow along with your finger. But when you see in the book, there are some times when people are urged to try following it with their finger. That was me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I noticed in the book too, that you, you have this, um, you kind of have like a seven week, um, prescription on like how to, how to pray it. Like what would you describe that? Like, sure. So we thought that the book lent itself really beautifully to breaking this down into a seven week spiritual practice for anybody who wants to try it and to inaugurate this when the book came out in 2018, we used our um, Facebook prayer wheel group to do this experimentally. And so we wrote up. 
And it doesn't exactly map on to the 46 days of Lent since there are 49 days of the prayer wheel, but it was pretty close, you know, yeah. it worked out well. And you, you start at the top of the wheel. If you're looking at a diagram of the wheel, you see there's a, a cross up there. We made a, a we had hired a designer to make a more user-friendly modern version of the wheel. The original is in Latin. It's on parchment. It's a little hard to read. So it's helpful to have one that's a bit more accessible. And then you start out with what's called the holy name path based on that first line from the Lord's Prayer, um, hallowed be thy name. And that path also has wisdom as the gift of the Holy Spirit, Christ's incarnation as the scene from his life, and then blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God as the beatitude. One of the coolest things about the wheel, what for me, one of those aha moments that helped kind of persuade me that this was something I wanted to spend a year of my life investigating, which is always the question in writing a book, is this something you can live with and still love at the end of a year? Uh Um, Was, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about. The uh, The last of the paths, which is the deliver us from evil path, in that path, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the fear of the Lord. So that's one of the the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And then that leads into the first path, the the one that as you're repeating the practice, where the spiritual, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit is wisdom. And immediately this light bulb went on in my head based on the scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the way this is structured, the, the last path ends with the fear of the Lord, and the first path begins with wisdom, which I thought was pretty cool. So it's just cyclical. Yes. Come around again and again and again. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that reminds me of, I mean, this is a, and, and Di is going to laugh because she knows that I'm such a Teresa of Avila stan. But, um, uh, you know, this obviously comes so far um, before Teresa and the interior castle. But one reason I, I love Teresa's metaphor so much is that uh, a house is someplace where you wander in and out of every room throughout the entire course of a day, right? So there's no kind of false understanding of progression. There's an understanding that you'll actually go back to the beginning. In fact, Teresa said that no one is so advanced in prayer that from time to time they don't have to start all over again. So mm-hmm. that, that cyclical nature, that cycle of the prayer wheel seems to um, fit with her mindset. Not that she ever would have seen one. I, I doubt she would have, but mm-hmm. yeah. Do you imagine that people would have followed the path in that way? Like almost as Carl's talking about like a rosary where you would pray one round of it and then pray it again, or some of the way you sort of set it up in the book and in the, you know, what you've just said is that people would pray it like over a course of several weeks. Um, you know, where you might pray one path of it this week or this month and then the next path. Do you think both are true or do you think people would kind of sit down with it in a kind of more regular fashion and pray it through multiple times? Well, there are a couple different theories about this. First of all, I would say that we're talking here about a pretty specialized or elite audience of monks and nuns who would have had access to these. We have today about 70 to 80 prayer wheels that remain in existence in libraries. And you can see how 
you know, how different they are from each other. We have one of the simpler, simplest and earliest ones here, but they get really elaborate. Um, here we have four texts and we have seven little segments. So 28 items altogether, they get as complicated as 16 and 16. You know, they just become huge and kind of unwieldy. Um, so probably we're not talking about this being available to everyone. Really really talking about it being available in a, in a monastic setting to a pretty well-educated group of people who were literate. And then the other thing is that there seems to be some evidence that this was used as a mnemonic device in order to help people learn these paths of, you know, passages of scripture and particularly for the, the larger and more elaborate ones as they go on, they're also, they're not just, you know, learning the seven paths of, of, uh, the Lord's prayer or the seven gifts of the Holy spirit, but also the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues and the seven spheres of knowledge, which I didn't even know that was a thing in medieval times, but apparently there are seven spheres of knowledge. So now, you know, yeah. So in order to memorize all of these items, things would be presented spatially. And so this is an example of how they were presented spatially in a wheel But we also have examples, particularly popular was the tree image where branches of knowledge, for example, would come off of the tree and then there would be tiny little um, smaller branches coming off of those. They really liked the idea of depicting things in a visual way to help people learn them and memorize them. Deanna, was there anything about praying this practice as you got to know it that felt different to you than other practices that you'd done? Yes. So one of the things that is both beautiful and also I think more difficult about the prayer wheel is the idea that the order of it is somehow holy. Um, Along the outer ring of the entire diagram in Latin, it says the order of the diagram um, written here teaches the return home. And this emphasis on order or ordo in Latin is important. And I'm a far less, uh, I I guess I'm more loosey-goosey with my prayers. For example, I don't tend to follow a a straight or linear path. But in some ways, that has been part of what has been fruitful and different for me, that this path, this way of praying, not exclusively, I don't, I don't do this all that often anymore, frankly. Uh, I probably ought to do it more often than I do. But when I do, it is interesting the things that come up in prayer and how they relate to each other. Especially in this system, there are some darker elements. There are darker elements in the, the Lord's Prayer, for example. There are some dark elements in the story of Jesus and when you juxtapose those together, you don't really get the shiny, happy Jesus that many American Christians have kind of fallen into. There's some gritty aspects of this prayer. And in, in that sense, I think it's particularly suited to uh, the times that we're living in right now. We have a, a lot of fear right now. We have a lot of uncertainty about the future. We're surrounded by death. All of those things are in the prayer wheel, and there's a comfort in walking those ancient paths that we're not the first people who have faced a pandemic. We're not the first people who have dealt with um, 
incompetent and rather terrible political leadership. You know, not that's political as your podcast, but <laughs> no, that's really helpful. Thank you. I appreciate that. That brings me to some questions about um, how much the tactile and the, the visceral might matter at this moment. Um, because we are again in this moment where we are in some ways divorced from the tactile in our prayer life, right? Like if we can't have communion together. We can't even be in the same room together. If we don't have singing. We don't have smells. We don't have that kind of blurred sense of people's bodies all around us. How do we engage in, in a kind of materiality of our prayer? And, and um, this really helps, Jana, because it's making me realize that so much of what I know of medieval practice or, or some maybe even ancient practice did have a purposefully tactile nature mm-hmm. to it. You know, like I'm thinking about like the Arma Christi, uh, you know, which were the, the tools and implements of Christ's torture and then crucifixion, uh, which people would pray for. Like there are medieval diagrams of the Arma Christi and how you pray through them and how you think about those objects, um, those, that material, um, essence of the story in a way that I think we who are not kind of from, from very rooted Roman Catholic tradition, I I grew up Methodist, you know, Mm -hmm. still feels kind of alluring and foreign and strange to, but I, I wonder kind of for all of us, like, how do we, how do we incorporate the material, the tactile and this odd, zoom worshiping community life mm-hmm. well i like what jane said earlier about having a shrine or or having you know a dedicated practice of a pr- place for prayer practice which helps to restore some of that tactile element and the the routinization of it and and i mean that in a good way in this case that routinization would be a, a, a powerful nod to stability in our prayer lives um, this is a very good point, Carl, about all of these other more tangible aspects of worship being forbidden at this time. Mm-hmm. We can't touch each other. Many of us can't have communion, you know, these very physical elements of the body of Christ. And we can't meet in person. We can't have congregational singing for probably many months to come. And and that's all incredibly depressing, to be honest with you. I feel pretty Um, yeah, I feel pretty discouraged about the lack of those things. And so perhaps a turning to these more ancient tactile ways of praying is a good one. Last week, um, I interviewed Sybil Macbeth online for Paraclete Press. So Sybil is the author of Praying in Color, which came out about 10 years ago. Okay, so um, that has been a a wonderful practice for me. You know, I, I was maybe not so much of a doodler as she was, but found that when I sat down to doodle my prayers, that actually I had that tactile element that I was missing and didn't know that I was missing. And so maybe we all need to seek out something physical to replace the physical aspects of spirituality that we don't have access to right now. I love that, Jana. And I, I, Carl actually introduced me to Praying in Color and lots of other people he's used it over the years, um, as, as have other spiritual director types that I've known. But, and I agree, I'm not like a doodler, but there is something about, and, and I, as I was thinking about having a prayer space, like 
the touching of things that were holy um, mm. to me at some point, like a stone that I carried back from Iona, you know, somehow helps transport us back to a time or a place where we were able to be in communion with God. Mm-hmm. And I, in some ways, that's the entire purpose of, you know, communion is a sort of re-remembering of a truth that we knew to be true. And when we reenact it, it becomes true again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I like the idea that these tactile practices, like what are the things that we could recover? I was thinking about dye, talking about gardening, but just like having my hands in the dirt is a connection to a spirituality that, you know, can't be expressed in other ways, but could be expressed in that particular way. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there is something really important about that. And I like the idea of what, I guess one question I had is you were saying that they're printed in the book, like a more contemporary version. Did you ever get single prayer wheels printed just for people just to hold the, the wheel itself? Yes. Well, only on, on, only on paper, you know, not on something so nice as cardstock, although, one of the coolest things that happened in this whole journey of, of writing about the prayer wheel was that people started making it their own. One guy actually took a photograph and sent it to us mm-hmm. of how he had taken a pizza box and made uh, like uh, on the top of a pizza box, he had made his own prayer wheel and it had a spinner in it so that he could basically spin the prayer wheel guy and then be told what to pray for on that day. And we were like, you go, you know, that's fantastic. But he was making it his own in that way, I think is a really beautiful thing. Because at the end of the day, like I said, we don't fully know how this was used. Could have been a pizza box. Yeah, I love that because I was going to, I mean, that's kind of what I was hearing from you is that there really isn't kind of one way to do it. I mean, that we all kind of personalize it or we, we find a way for it to work for us. Um, and then, you know, that just, that just feels to be the case with a lot of just kind of um, consistent prayer. I mean, even using, even praying the daily office, I don't pray it kind of exactly the way it kind of comes out in the rubrics. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of make it my own or add things here, or add things there. And it just, that makes sense. So I have a question for you. Um, so you wrote the book, Flunking Sainthood. Um, and you wrote the book, The Prayer Wheel. So did you flunk the prayer wheel? That's my question for you. Well, I just admitted to you all that I'm not doing this very often anymore. So, yeah, I think so. Um, we can we can add that on to the long list of of prayer practices that I've tried but have not been very consistent about. And I don't I don't know that that's flunking maybe so much as um, I don't I don't know what to call it sure. necessarily. Well, so the, really, the question really so the reason I asked that is what what drew you to to write to spend a year researching this and write on this. Well, that aspect of discovery, you know, it's not very often that, uh, you know, David and Patton and I all have some kind of career as religion journalists, David more so because that was his exclusive professional identity. And um, it's just not very often that you have the opportunity to research and write about something that nobody else has done before. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And it's uh, it's incredible that it just fell into our laps in the way that it did. And also, I, I know I love my friends and I wanted to be involved in doing a project with them. But that sense of curiosity and discovery, we really didn't know when we began researching this 
what we would find if this would turn out to be a, a beautiful, you know, spiritual practice that would help people. If it would turn out to be a nothing burger, we had no idea when we were starting this, yeah. but just followed the, the whiff of curiosity, I guess. That makes me wonder, Jana, what you're curious about next. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so the last four years I've been researching, I've kind of taken a turn as a historian to researching social science and working on religion in America today. And so my biggest research questions now are about young people leaving religion and about why people stay, why people don't stay. And most of my research questions now are related to that. And the one that of course I'm, I am and every other person who's interested in social science is asking right now is what influence will the pandemic have, if any, on people's habits and religiosity in the United States and everywhere else, of course. Mm, That kind of makes me think about sort of connecting the current things that you're curious about with, I was sort of wanting to go deeper with Jason's question, which is, I wonder if there is, I too have a sense that there's like not one spiritual practice that I can keep for forever and ever and ever. Like I tend to be a dabbler, like try this for a season and try this for a season. And in each, I find something rich and beautiful, but not necessarily something that I'll do every day for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And yet on that wheel, it says, this is the path, right? Like do these, say these words, these in this order, right. This order have this effect. And so there's a sort of tension there between like, choose your own adventure with the wheel and here's the path. Like just walk this path. Mm -hmm. And when I talk with young people, I too have spent a lot of time talking with young adults about their spiritual lives. There does seem to be this interesting tension there as well between wanting to sort of choose their own adventure and finding this deep rootedness in ancient practices And anyway, so it's a long way of asking a question like, where are you with that tension? And what are you hearing from young adults about that particular piece? Mm -hmm. Well, from young adults in particular, I know that many people have chronicled this kind of rise in the spiritual but not religious. Um, From a social science perspective, there's not a lot there. in terms of, I'm trying not to be insulting of those people's research, but spiritual but not religious it is really religion becoming more and more diluted to the point that it may even become unrecognizably religious. So, yeah, I don't see a lot of evidence that young people who are not already involved in religion, at least tangentially, are interested in spiritual practice. Correct me if I'm wrong from your perspective. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to formulate the thought. Um, and, and Jane, this is going back in some ways to what you said. Like, I feel that there is often among young people a kind of um, liturgical conservatism or, or traditionalism, in part mm-hmm. because it provides a difference from the, the somewhat disposable world that they are surrounded by. And I'm not sure it's necessarily the same thing, like moving between ancient practices 
uh, to, to kind of fit the, the journey of your soul, I don't think is necessarily the same thing as like moving between looks, you know, uh, when you get like whole new outfits or things like that. Like, I, you know, so I, I think that you can maybe do both, that you can both be kind of a, a traditionalist because you want to have to be in touch with something that has been deeply tested by tradition, uh, particularly tradition of prayers, um, but also have some space within those traditions for your soul to, to move um, as you, as you grow closer to God. Does that, I mean, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. I mean, I think that's the thing that I wrestle with is I tend to be not such a traditionalist on so many levels And yet I note the longing and sense of the sacred that a lot of young adults, and maybe it's a very small segment to your point, Jana, that we're like actually talking about young adults attracted to the Episcopal church in some way, shape or form, which is a very small percentage of a very small percentage of all young adults who are out there. So like with that caveat, but yeah, I mean the, the young adults who I have been in contact with, I think there is this sense of like, just do it the way that it says to do it. Stop yeah. playing with it. And I'm like, but I like playing with it. I think there's something sort of fun and creative about the playing with it part. But I think there's also wisdom in the like, here's a path, walk this path. And, you know, whether it's the Ignatian practices or a prayer wheel or, you know, saying the rosary, like, I think there are like, these things can produce a way of encountering God that other things may not in the same kind of way. So I don't know. I, I think I'm just curious about that because it's a tension I've experienced in my own self. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Me too, very much. Well, and I don't want to get too loose with this term, but I mean, there's a sense of like, I mean, I think about interpreting texts and I mean, you think of postmodernism and you think about the idea of like when you're reading a text, I mean, there's, there's some, you know, more maybe a traditionalist wants to they want to really understand what was the original intent or what you know original meaning i think with postmodernism it's like we, we can't discover that and we really don't know and we never really will be able to and um so there's almost like an element of within this kind of postmodern you know culture and time i can i can kind of see why people want to be playful with the prayer wheel as much as they want to be with an ancient text i mean i don't know what do you well i i think Liturgy is, you know, it carries a a multitude of concerns with it. And one is that it actually reflects and speaks to the community that is there now. And so that might require some change or some manipulation of, of something that was useful to a community 800 years ago, right? Like as much as we might like something like a prayer wheel, for instance, um, it was not developed for our particular phase or moment of Christianity. And therefore I think some adaptability in saying, okay, I'm going to take the thing and put it on a pizza box and use a spinner, you know, is, is warranted is a value even. Right. Um, but again, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you, I think you agree with that since you like the pizza box, but I love the pizza box. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The, the other thing I was thinking about in terms of the tactile, um, as my Christian formation director for Children's Church on Sunday did this great thing where he just had the kids go and get some object to hold throughout the worship time. And at first he was like, if you have a Bible or a prayer book, go get that. 
um, but actually not many of the kids did. This is one of the challenges with like trying to do prayer book liturgy, quote unquote. Um, so they just got, went and got stuffed animals and things. And I thought, you know, that'd be great. I mean, what if like for worship, at the beginning of your online worship, you say, uh, we're going to be talking about dirt a lot today. So go get a pot of dirt and have it to play with while we worship together or something. Like, put your hands in it. Fantastic. This past Sunday, we played hooky from Grown Up Virtual Church, and the three of us just watched our Godly Play video, and I put together the closest approximation I could come up with of the materials um, that the storyteller used so that my kid could do it along with her. Um, And we're going to probably keep doing that for a while because I love Godly Play anyway, but... um, there was just so much more engagement. Having something to touch really helps. Yes. And they're called manipulable. What are they called, Di? They're like manipulables or something? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So it, what is it called? Manip- well, in Montessori, you typically call it manipulatives, like any of the objects that children would use for learning or, or yeah, discovery. Yeah. Which is, in a way, what the prayer wheel was, right? <laughs> it was a manipulative yes. for prayer. In the book, David called it a, a medieval handheld device, which I think is pretty <laughs> tough. Yeah. Well, there is something interesting about that, too, then. So there's one thing about, like, and my preference would be, like, find dirt or find a rock or find a favorite cross or make a cross of, at home or something and hold this during worship. But there's a question then about kind of handheld devices now and are people praying through their phones and through other kinds of, you know, electronic mediums? Mm-hmm. And does that, you know, I think there's a moment where I sort of say, this is terrible and keeps us disconnected. And then there's parts of me that feels like this is the thing that is connecting us and leading us deeper, various apps or whatever. What do you all think about that? Like this being the, you know, contemporary version of a prayer wheel that we have in our hands on some level. We always have it with us. I mean, I do. I imagine that most of us do. Um, and I know that I've, there's, there are a couple of rosary apps that I've used in the past. There's a great podcast called pray as you go that I've used for well over a decade. Um, it's, it doesn't feel the nicest. Um, while we're talking about the tactile element, it doesn't feel the best, um, but if it's that or nothing, and so often it is that or nothing, right? Um, my, until they put more pockets in women's pants, that's what I've got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I can't do the daily like morning prayer without my phone because I that's where I get my colleagues and my. I mean, I know I could go find them somewhere else, but I don't even. I mean, that's just I use it. Every, I rely on. It. So yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jana, for, for joining us. This was a very uh, interesting and intriguing conversation. Okay, well, and then your book, The Prayer Will, you know, um, with Pat and Dodd and David Van Biema. And interesting enough, um, I also know Pat and Dodd. Um, I, well, I, I, I've met him a couple times. So it is a small world, Jana, that we know the same person. I knew him from my time in Tulsa. Um, I don't know when you met him, but... Um, Going back to just the idea. So I just want to say thank you again. I, I want to encourage everybody to, you know, to, 
to see how maybe the prayer well might renew your spiritual life or help you to pray. And, uh, and that's it. Uh, Carl. Okay. So um, I just want to finish up by directing people to the Facebook group, search for the prayer wheel on Facebook and readers can find it and join the group. Great. All right. Well, Jana, first, thank you so much for joining us and being our guest today. And all of you out there listening, thank you for joining us for this episode of Liturgy and Lawning, our penultimate episode. We have only one left in this eight-part series. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly, and you can find more of her music at Bandcamp. We'll be back next week when our topic will be discipleship. So we'll we'll get to talk about how to finally turn all of this uh, thinking and pondering into action, even during COVID times. So thank you all, and we will uh, we will talk to you next week. Oh,